What's up guys and welcome to Script Blast, a podcast to help you write better screenplays and write a better life. We've got an exclusive episode for you all today. In case you haven't heard, we've recently started Script Blast Members, an online community to bring together screenwriters from all levels of experience to collaborate and learn in a diverse and supportive space. Every week, members get new video lessons on self-help and writing tips, as well as group Zoom calls with our host Hudson and other members in our writer's room. Access to a growing resource library of ebooks, workshops, and lessons, and the ability to share your ideas and get better feedback to better accelerate your career. Today's episode is an exclusive sneak peek into our group, taken straight from our coaching call in October of 2020. In this call, Hudson interviewed world-renowned writer, actor, and teacher, Bob Zudiker. While he began his career as an actor, Bob soon delved into the world of writing alongside his wife and creative partner, Noni White. His extensive resume includes Newsies and many Disney classics like The Lion King, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Anastasia, and Tarzan. Bob's ability to touch on delicate topics like family and identity has given him a home in all of our hearts, and today he gives us half a dozen tips for a long and successful career as a screenwriter. This call is largely unedited to give you an accurate look into our group and includes everything but our Q&A session, which we always keep for the end of our calls. That's right, as a member, your question can be the next one we ask. Join today, free for a week, at members.scriptblast.com. Now here's Hudson and Bob. So, Bob, thank you so much for um, chatting with us today. I'm very excited. We've been interacting on and off for, what, about a year now or so, just through email and over Facebook and things? Yep, that's it. Yeah. I forget how I saw you. I, I was trying to remember this morning, but I I saw Script Blast. I took a look, and I thought you were unique in your approach looking at the person within the writer and uh, approaching the writing from the individual out standpoint, which yeah. I think is really unique and extremely useful and, and important because there are all kinds of ways that writing can um, help someone grow and there are ways in which writing or attempting to write can end up degrading their self-image if they're having if they're struggling with writing. Right. And you really want to be able to separate those two things in a way that I think that you do successfully. Yeah, well, thank you very much. And you've been such a massive encouragement as I've been doing all this stuff too. But but since you brought it up, because we will get into a lot of your story and stuff, but I know a lot of what we talk about in both in our Script Blast members group and just writers in general, one of the biggest frustrations writers talk about is that kind of mindset side of things and is the person. And like you said, it can be um, very uplifting or it can be very destructive, this writing journey. So I'm I'm curious, a couple of things. One is, do you still deal with that at this part of your career because you're so far along? Does that stuff ever go away? And then if not, how do you, how do you deal with some of that self-worth stuff? No, I'm perfect in every way. Uh, <laughs> Great, no, it, over. It, it really, for me, I'll just speak for myself, it, it doesn't change that much. What, what has changed is my ability to tolerate the ups and downs of it. So when I'm in a down phase and having struggling to, to write, uh, my wife and, and frequent writing partner, Noni White, uh, likens it to, okay, you're with a little child and they're afraid or they're upset. And you just take them by the hand and you keep moving. Mm. And I mean, you acknowledge the feelings, but you don't let them overwhelm the moment. You keep moving. And I think that I'm more 
accustomed to, okay, I'm in a down phase today, it'll change. You know, if I just keep at it, it will change. Mm -hmm. And if I can't keep at it, that'll change too. And I'll find a way back in. Um, you know, there's a way in which being a writer is like, if you have heavy schooling in your background, it's sort of like owing a term paper at all times and you don't know what it's about. Yeah. Uh, so there is a, a pressure that you, an internal pressure that you have to deal with that you don't have to deal with when you're on a job, when you're a professional and you know exactly what it is you're supposed to be doing um, in the occasion when that happens. So it's really two different things. One is the professional aspect, which I have to say is much easier. Having a paycheck at the end of delivery is a fabulous motivator. But when you're working on a spec, when you're working alone, uh, it's, it's, it is much harder. It can be quite lonely. Yeah. Do you have any tips and tricks for self-motivation when you don't have that uh, external deadline or paycheck waiting for you when you are writing on spec? What, what kind of tips do you have for pushing through and getting it done? What we used to do was say that we could, uh, if we wrote five pages, we bought the day. And buying the day to us meant we could go to the, a matinee. Uh, you know, movies are cheaper when it's a matinee. And we were actors, so we didn't have straight jobs that required us constant attention, um, so we were free to do that. I've used every sort of image I can think of, you know, that the blank page has a monster behind it, and if I don't cover it with, with material, that monster is going to explode through the blank screen. You find ways to trick yourself into writing, because fundamentally, we don't want to change. Mm. Our, we, ha we have a lot of the uh, our psyches have tremendous inertia and the act of writing is creating something where nothing was there before. That violates that sense of inertia and there can be a lot of resistance internally mm -hmm. to, to getting to it. And, but again, it, it just the main trick is keep finding the things that work for you. Keep experimenting. One will work for a while and you may need to switch and find another one. Uh, because that inertia will find its way around uh, your trick. The, the, the most important thing to me is, are you accountable in some way for being productive? And so I know we talked a lot about it, but I, I created a web app called Zoodiker, which is spelled Z-O-O-D-I-K-E-R.com. Because writers are so often uh, alone and they don't get responses to their writing. So almost all successful writers that I know have started out in some way or another in groups, in writing groups. It may be at some educational institution. I teach at USC, but it, it, uh, I started in a completely private group that cost us a dollar a week mm. for the cookies and coffee. And I would schedule work I would schedule a night when I was going to bring in work and we read it out loud. It happened to be mostly actors transitioning to writers. So the sight readings we got were incredibly good. I mean, better than the professional hired in, let's read this script uh, uh, readings that I've been a part of. And the fact that I committed to bringing something in forced me to write. 
Mm-hmm. So that was one way I would trick myself, artificial deadlines. Um, so the app is designed so that writers can be accountable to each other if they choose to form a group there. It gives them an infrastructure and a place to, in a, to share their work securely because they can identify who sees it and the rest of the population won't see it at all. And the other trick to it is that they only see one page at a time in the web browser. So they're not downloading a script. And at the bottom of each page, you respond in some way. To me, the the essence of screenwriting is momentum. Um, How do you feel about turning the page? Is it out of a sense of obligation? Are you eager? You can't wait to turn the page? So there are several buttons that can just, uh, you know, either you're just, okay, let's proceed. I'm interested, I'm eager. That's graphable. And you can start to see as more people read, patterns emerge in which, gee, maybe there's a lag in here that I should look at. Why are people dropping their level of interest? Um, Or gee, they're eager all the way across there. Is that a good thing? Do I need a little, a breather in there? You know, like a little beautiful sunset scene or something like that, just to take a break so I don't wear them out. So it's really, it's an app designed for people who are aspiring writers to get feedback from each other so that they can grow as writers. People can find that at zoodiker.com, right? Z-O-O-D-I-K-E-R.com, yeah, that's the website. It's free right now, so it's really the best time to to experiment with it. I'll keep it free as long as I can. Yeah. It's not a time to be charging people a lot of money. So. Yeah, I've, I've used the app for a script after you and I connected, and it is really cool to take what is generally considered something very subjective getting screenplay notes, right? You get a lot of opinions, and you try to objectify it as much as possible in terms of the momentum in turning pages, the d- data of how long it takes for them to get through a certain uh, selection, in addition to some of those subjective things and what they think about it. Yeah. Uh, but I found that um, to really be a breakthrough but for that reason. I mean, like I may not like the person that has given me notes. They may not like my genre. You know, There's all these kind of subjective things that are real roadblocks in getting great feedback. And I feel like the Zutica app does a great job of kind of breaking through that. Yeah, thank you. I, I... I'm really trying to push it as as an infrastructure for aspiring writers. And then as we grow, we'll be able to turn it into, through internal contests, a place where writers can be discovered. Um, But the first thing is to get people in there interacting, reading each other's material. Uh, So I'm I'm really excited about it. It's it's really my full-time job right now is getting that rolling and then teaching on the side also. So it's also a great excuse to not write, um, <laughs> yeah. which is kind of the downside of it. You know, unless I'm on a job right now, it's hard for me to find time to be productive. Yeah. So let's back up some. So you mentioned kind of your first foray into the industry was acting, right? It was. I'm curious. Growing up, was it always? Uh, was acting always first and then writing was the distraction from that or was writing always a part of your life as well? It's hard for you to remember. I just, for some reason in high school, I thought I'd audition for the school play in this little tiny school. And for some reason I kept doing that and I must have some sort of talent for it, but I never trained. I never 
for acting or writing for that matter, but buried in there is some desire to live more lives than a single life. Whether that's healthy or not, I don't know. But there's something about acting in which you can, from the inside to the outside, have a different person's experience. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I really love that on stage. For some reason, I knew I was supposed to be right. It never occurred to me when I was in college or anything that I would go into showbiz or any of that stuff. I just sort of kept, you know, a friend when I was a sophomore in college and said, there's a summer stock theater in my town in Southern Virginia, you should audition. So I auditioned and they hired me. So then somebody said, well, you should go to New York. So I went to New York after I graduated and lived on nothing and which you could do in New York at the time. Uh, so I never had that careerist view. I really did not have an understanding of the business and how it worked, especially uh, as an actor. Mm -hmm. And then as I worked more on film, I became less and less interested in acting. And it really was a, a wonderful part-time job that paid me enough to uh, survive without uh, taking up a huge amount of time. Mm. Uh, so I knew I was supposed to be writing. I couldn't tell you why. <laughs> is there something to that? Because you said the appeal of an actor is you get to be a different person for a period of time. Is writing appealing in that same way? Because you get to be, and maybe that's why it's more appealing to you, you get to be more people. You get to disappear into every single <laughs> character a little bit. I know I'm, I'm coming off dangerously schizophrenic. But, <laughs> um, there it's a little, it, I think it's different. There's a way in which you are speaking through other people um, or, or creating other behaviors. It's more global. You're creating a whole world. You're creating an internally consistent world whether it involves magic or science fiction or it has rules that you have to both invent so each story has its own set of physics its own sets of cause and effect and i, I think I, I find that larger stage uh, more interesting mm -hmm. the only time i feel a, a pull towards acting is when i see something on stage or i think about doing something on stage the camera always made me too nervous yeah uh, and still does. I'm okay with this little thing on my computer screen, but those big <laughs> right. cameras with the whole crew yeah, behind yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> All the pressure on you. So tell me, how did you make the transition then from acting to writing, um, and why did you make that transition? I had a college friend who had started to work in television, and I would help him break his stories. So I got a bit of an education in hour-long television of that era. It has a different, uh, the structuring is a bit different nowadays. So that was like an unpaid apprenticeship for a while. And meanwhile, I was trying to do my own things, but I struggled with the discipline of it always. Um, then um, I was cast in a play, the actress playing my wife, up and moved to Paris. So I called a friend and said, get me some, you know, somebody good, somebody sane who I'd like to work with. He said, well, why don't you call Noni White? We happened to have met once. We were members of the same extended theater company, the Ensemble Studio Theater, which is in New York and LA. And she got the job. And then 
that spark. This is a cute meat, you know. Yeah. And, uh, but she was a horror in the play. I mean, her character was. was yeah. I was really, really sweet, and she was just awful. Yeah. And and she invited me to this writing group called the Writers Block. That was a bunch of people from New York who had moved here mostly. It was an extension of a group in New York called the Writers Block that was mostly actors becoming playwrights. It was limited to playwrights. Here it broadened to any kind of writing. And she's very dyslexic, so it's hard for her when she's, when somebody thrusts script pages at her in an audition, here, read this one. Mm. It's really hard for her to make that adjustment. And she wanted to practice cold reading in that way, and the writer's block gave her that practice. But we started writing together coming out of that. And we wrote a spec script. No, we didn't. We wrote two TV episodes just to date it. It was a Cosby and a Golden Girls. That's okay. A and she, now we had 20 plus years each in the business already as actors. So they're, you know people, you're familiar with how the world works, how to move within that world. It's basically based on relationships more than a corporate world, which is internally based on relationships with, because of the, the free flow that it's always a gig that you're doing, uh, makes your web of relationships much more important. She had known this agent, a literary agent, who uh, was the head of this big literary agency. So she called him and said, would you read this? Just tell us if we're crazy. So we sent him the scripts on a Thursday, I think. Monday morning, he calls and says, we want to represent you. And we thought, well, <laughs> wait a second. <laughs> you know, we had no idea that that might be in the offing. He said, but we're not strong in television. You need to write a feature. Mm. Then a friend from the writer's block, Jane Anderson, sold a TV series, and we were offered a job to write on that half-hour series. And before we started, the writer's strike of 1988 hit. Wow. And suddenly everything was shut down. And then when that series finally started up, there were lots of A-list writers really, really hungry. It was a long strike. So we were told, you know, sorry, but you know, we got to hire these other people who work for the same pay. But like many other people, we had started writing a feature. Mm. The feature was called Mrs. Faust. And we, for various reasons, had ended up at a different agency, the same agency as Jane Anderson, actually. Uh, Jane won the Emmy for Olive Kittredge a couple of years ago. Oh, wow, well, yeah. Uh, nominated for an Oscar for, and of that writer's group, Donald Margulies won a Pulitzer Prize in playwriting. Uh, Jules Selbo is a major scholar of film, of screenwriting, teaching, and Janet Fitch wrote a book called White Oleander that was okay. a bestseller and became a movie with Michelle Pfeiffer. It was a bizarre assemblage of people who succeeded in the business. I don't know why there was that little cluster. David Chapp wrote a spec screenplay that launched the, the big spec screenplay frenzy in the uh, very late 80s yeah and our mrs faust joined that he started it the sale of mrs faust ended that running because 
we sold Mrs. Faust, I think at two o'clock on a certain day. At four o'clock, we started bombing Kuwait and Iraq in the first Gulf War. Capital markets shut down, studios stopped buying. And that ended that spec script frame. Yeah. But that sale bought us the house that we're still in. Wow. It moved us from our tiny little apartment. I, I skipped that we wrote Mrs. Faust and it got optioned but didn't sell. Um, it, we got meetings with nine producers. Our agent said, what do you want to do next? You know, come in, let's talk about your ideas. We brought in three ideas and she said, well, which one are you most passionate about? And we said, well, it's this one, but you know, it's, it's very dark, it's historical, it's kids. It's like strike one, strike two, strike three, yeah. you're out. And she said, well, pitch that. Well, we pitched it to nine producers, eight of them passed. The ninth development person at this one producer said, I'm going to make this happen. This is going to happen. Yeah. And that became newsy. Yeah. Uh, so the first time we walked on the studio lot as writers, was to pitch Newsies at Disney. The next meeting was at Amblin for Spielberg's company. Wow. Disney bought it right away. I don't know what would have happened if Spielberg would have bought it. Yeah. And at this point, because you said before Newsies was like R-rated and it was much darker at that point, right? It was a dark drama about a, the, uh, based on the historical event of the Newsies, the newsboys and girls of New York City, going on strike against Kirsten Pulitzer and what became quite a violent action yeah. over a period of three weeks in the summer of 1899. And we were, we had a particular slant on it. Now our slant remained, but there was pressure from the studio head, Jeffrey Katzenberg, having come off the success of Little Mermaid, can we revive the movie musical? Wow. When we sold Newsies, we got, it paid half our debt. So it was really low fee for writing. Mm. And we said to our lawyer, but we want to retain the rights to it for stage because this would be a great Broadway musical. And, yeah. and he laughed in our faces. Our <laughs> own lawyer laughed. He said, your first deal and it's Disney. It'll never happen. Yeah. Guess what? It did happen. Wow. Because of the Writers Guild giving us separated rights so that we own the rights to things like novelizations or stage or, you know, other iterations of those stories and characters. And that's been a big, big help to us. Yeah. So, so I'm assuming, and you don't have to be too honest, but I'm assuming that kept paying for a very long time, much more than that initial payment you guys got for the film, right? Yes, completely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it took 20 years. Right. Or more for it to come to to start to come to fruition, but yes, if you can own something of your intellectual property, then you you know the writers guild gives you a a form of ownership that you don't own the copyright, but you own it's like a a shadow of the copyright. That's still enough when it changes media to give you royalties. In this case, the copyright for corporations is now 99 years. So for another 90 years, when some school does newsies, we get a little something, you know, based on what it is. Um, yeah. I'm sure that'll start declining at some point, but it's been very popular. It ran on Broadway, won two ponies and toured nationally and all that. So it, it has been 
it has been great. Yeah, my family saw it in Atlanta at the Fox Theaters. It was a very uh-huh. cool, yeah, yeah, yeah. It certainly has a ton of lasting power. Um, I wanted to pause for a second in your story because I think we mentioned it, but if we didn't make it clear, Noni is both your writing partner and your life partner. That's right. But I would love to know which came first. Were you guys writing together before the romance started or were you together? Romance first. Okay, gotcha. She, she suggested writing together and I said no, and I, I thought I was beyond her. Yeah. <laughs> but she had written something for the writer's group that I thought was really, really good. And she said, well, you're, you're an ass. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and she was right. Yeah. She's strong in character and dialogue. You know, that, that ADD dyslexia thing makes it so that she's kind of bouncing all over the place and not tracking. I can track too much. <laughs> I track myself right into a rut. And yeah. so she has the effect of bouncing me out of a rut. So it works well. I mean, we okay. basically... We want to get it done. We don't want to be right, um, right. necessarily. Wow. But I'm curious because, gosh, a marriage has all of its own group of problems. A writing partnership has all of its own group of problems. You guys are facing constant struggles, like scripts falling through, the strike, all these kind of things. How do how do you navigate all of those balancing relationships and make it successful for what a few decades now? Uh, part of it is is weeding the garden constantly. So, you know, we make use of therapy of like we go to a therapist together. Uh, we did for many many years. Uh, first me separately. You know, my debt when we got together, we had exactly equal debt. Mine was from therapy. Hers was from helping take care of her mother when as she oh, was. Oh wow! Yeah. Uh, so it it's. Uh, for some reason, the professional stuff doesn't have an impact. Mm. It feels very separate. It's either very separate or it's just so enmeshed that I can't, I can't separate the thread. Um, yeah, it sounds like a lot of it just has to do with choosing the right partner and um, choosing someone that, like you said, has that balance that fills in your gaps and you fill in her gaps and it just kind of works. Yeah. I think in any kind of partnership like that, if you need to be right, no partnership is going to work. <laughs> you know, if you don't need to be right and are willing to grow or see things differently, and I think that's essential to being a writer is mm-hmm. to be able to see something one way, but then turn it through various alternatives. You know, what's the meaning of this? Is there a better expression of that? That same spirit is helpful, I, I think, in uh, in a marriage. Yeah, I but love that. My my experience is so individual. I, I can't speak with any any wisdom or authority. I think on. on yeah, yeah. No, no one uh, take Bob's advice and then sue him that it didn't work for you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, walk me through from Newsies to kind of becoming the go-to writers for Disney animation in the 90s. What, what was that transition like? The uh, Disney feature animation development department would watch what was, watch for writers coming through the live action division. Uh-huh. And they saw the first draft of Newsies and they called us in to talk about a project. I wanted to do it and Noni didn't think it was a good idea. We were both right. <laughs> 
our lawyer said, it won't hurt you, but it won't help you to do animation. Crucial difference, feature animation at the big studios is not covered by the Writers Guild because uh -huh. there's an animation union within IATSE that covers it. So you get paid and that's it. And that's true for everybody in animation except for the voice actor to get residuals. There are no residuals, wow. no downstream income from these movies. So they called us in on this project that was an idea going to be directed by a guy named Rob Minkoff. Kelly Asbury was the head of story who manages the storyboard artists. Jerry Herman was the composer lyricist. Now Jerry was, was, a, was a, just passed away last year. One of the most wonderful, sweet guys. He wrote La Casual Foe. He wrote uh, Mac and Mabel. He wrote the um, right name. I can't. Anyway. You know, if you look him up, Jerry Herman, you'll see this incredible resume of Broadway shows. And they put us in a trailer. It was a low priority development experiment. But within 10 weeks, we had a script. We had 88 storyboards. We had six songs. Wow. And we had done it as a complete collaboration of, you know, we have the story meetings with the head of story, with the director, us, the writers, and, uh, and with Jerry who had a lot of experience with integrating song and, and story. Yeah. And um, so it was a great education. The project didn't go, okay. uh, sadly. Yeah. Rob then went on to become one of the two directors on a little movie called The Lion King. <laughs> and they called us over to work on The Lion King. And we worked on that for, it was only a month. So we wrote all the father-son stuff, wow. um, all the Mufasa Simba stuff in the first, a lot of the first act and stuff later. I can't remember what came later, yeah. but individual things. But uh, Irene Mecki and Jonathan Roberts, they, they stayed for a long run. We had a project go at Warner Brothers, I think, a live action project. And we moved on to that. And I guess that because it, almost everything we wrote stuck. See, when they called us on The Lion King, um, they had just gotten in the song for um, The Circle of Life from Elton and, and Tim Rice. Tim Rice was there at this meeting and they had the storyboards up of the opening. Now those storyboards are the most brilliant storyboards you've ever seen. So it's just a, an eight and a half by 11 sheet of white paper, you know, with these drawings on that are, exactly what you see in the film yeah. and so they put the song on and roger Allis, who is the senior director on it it's it's silent you were just hearing the song and he's like, almost like a dance across the storyboards that are up on the wall giving us the timing of what we're seeing as the song goes and then he turns to us and says do you want to work on this we said yeah <laughs> i mean this is great that Not knowing that everybody else in Disney was trying to kill themselves to get off the project because it was so troubled and so they couldn't, couldn't find its story legs. Huh. And Pocahontas was, you know, starting up. And, you know, it looked other movies were drawing the, the, you know, the talent away. But we, again, just loved that process. In live action, you're working alone for the most part, you know, you go in for meetings and 
you're if you're lucky you're working in conjunction with the director but it's usually an executive and a producer then you go off and do your work then you turn in the draft and it's very iterative you know you turn in a draft you wait a few weeks you get notes you have meetings about the notes figure out what to do do another draft and and move on and you're paid by the draft in animation we were paid by the week wow. so you're just there so the yeah. question came up in one meeting i remember why do you think all the animals are so into the lions when lions eat them <laughs> and, okay that could be a problem yeah. so we said well we'll we'll take a look at it we'll see what we can do having heard the song circle of life we created that Mufasa taking Simba on a tour of the kingdom, basically. Wow. Yeah. And we pulled the image of the circle of life into the story, um, which then gave a kind of foundation for the story. Mm. Uh, we realized later, uh, and the head of Disney Animation told us that that really grounded the story at that point by pulling that imagery in and giving it meaning in the context of story, not just as a lyric. I call it the carnivore apology because the purpose of the scene was, you know, we eat them, why they like us. And it's, it's, it's something like, you know, we eat the antelope and then we die when we come to the grass and the antelope eat us. It's like this, you know, overly rosy sense of justice and a circle of life, but because uh, it's still no fun to get eaten so, unless you're a dead lion. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious because what you set out to do was not animation at all. And you talked about even you were drug into it a little bit. Do we really want to be doing this? I'm curious what you saw your career as what you set out for it to be. And then how you, especially with writers today, they're like, oh, I want to do this one thing. I want to be this one thing. But when you really get into it, you're pulled in different directions and it's you're faced with some difficult decisions. Do I go down this path knowing that I'm going to be an animation writer for the rest of my career? Was, was that a battle for you at the time? And how do you navigate some of those career decisions? I think my navigation is really, uh, I don't think about it much. Okay. Uh, better or worse. Yeah. Um, I am project driven. I, I'll see something I want to do and I'll do that. I don't care if it's live action or animation. One motivator could be money, uh, if, if money is on offer. But if that's the sole reason, that never works out well. Mm. Um, so um, there are people who are very career directed. You know, I'm teaching this class uh, at USC this semester, it's a lecture class, and so I have a lot of guests in, and I ask all of them how they started their careers and how they ended up where they are. Not one of them ended up where they saw themselves, not okay. one of them. Mm. And, and I ask, what, what is the unifying quality of the people you see that, that you've encountered, that you've worked with, who wanted to be in the business? What is it that distinguishes the ones who succeed? And there's always a variant of the answer. It's, it's, it's passion for the work that they're doing now mm. and not dismissing it as a, well, I'm really a director. Well, no, you're a PA. Yeah. Do that really well with great enthusiasm. Do that as well as you can. That's what will move you to the next step. 
and um, and that was true for for all of their careers. They did not. Uh, I mean, a, a bunch of them set out to be in animation uh, and dreamed of working at Disney. So that's a you know that's one aspect. But they didn't imagine directing, for instance. They didn't imagine whatever job they they had at the time. Right. Right. So I'm curious too, the time you spent at Disney Animation, what, what kind of lessons did you learn that you were able to apply to your writing? What really stuck with you? What, uh, now that you're teaching, what lessons from the animation world do you teach your students? I'm a kind of improvisatory teacher. <laughs> but um, to me, what, what's, what's developed is if you don't know what the story is about, if you don't have a core idea that goes deep all the way down to the center of the earth if possible um, then you're going to struggle with what the story is going to be the mm -hmm. plot is never going to settle down you'll never figure out your antagonist motivation so i started out heavily outlining plot 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 not understanding that plot is not the same thing as story and a story needs to be about something it needs a, a, an energy at its center preferably a tension a dramatic tension between two things opposing forces we worked on punchback that was very stable quasimodo wants to go out there out there is dangerous so now you know, well, he has a false father who says, no, it's dangerous, stay inside. You have Esmeralda who says, I need to be free. Yeah. And so the tension between safety and confinement versus freedom but danger. Mm. Right away, you've got, you know, you've got an energy that can start to drive your story. And then you can populate it. If you don't have characters, you've got nothing. Yeah. So character and I'm hesitant to call it theme because what I just described about Hunchback is not theme the way we might have been taught it in college, although I never was. It's not a moral, it's not a, a lesson that you're trying to impart. It's a, to me, it's a dramatic tension. Even in a comedy, even more so, you want that an even sharper delineated conflict between two energies that are bound together. Gosh. Yeah, that's so brilliant too. And it's something that it feels so intuitive and it feels so hard to teach. But when you think about like a core tension like that, it makes the writing a lot easier because then you know every scene is going to either be pulling him out into the world where it's dangerous or pulling him out into the world where he thinks it's safe for a little bit or keeping him, you're constantly battling. It gives you a, a drive for every scene that you write. Exactly. But, why, but why is that so hard for us to, to grasp? Why is that not a concept that's on every single screenwriting blog out there, you know? I don't know that it's not because I, I don't look at much. Right. <laughs> it was one of the only ones yeah. I've looked at. Um, and, uh, I mean, except for me to see that, oh no, they're talking about act one, act two, act three, and the midpoint, and this and then that, and I mean, okay, that, you know, don't give me rules, give me tools, give me things I can work with, not 
these rules that are really applied in retrospect. After you've written, they can be useful. <laughs> Does this yeah. fall into three acts? Does it more or less come, you know, between page 20 and 30, uh, 35, whatever? And, yeah. um, you know, when do things change? So I just look for every scene, something needs to change. Yeah. And preferably more than one thing. Every scene has to do at, at least move the story forward, develop character. It needs at least two elements or it's going to get cut. Mm. Um, Tarzan, we came on, it was much more trouble than Hunchback. Tab Murphy had done wonderful drafts of a Tarzan story that was a great action adventure story. He had done a brilliant first pass at Hunchback, the adaptation of Hunchback. So we've followed Tab and worked in conjunction with him three times. Wow. Uh, so in conjunction for a short time on Hunchback. And Tarzan was unstable. They called us in and they, you know, they showed us some stuff, which was incredible. And then I said, well, what's it about? And there was this long silence. Because at the core of all the problems was if this material they were developing was not what the directors really wanted it to be about. And Kevin Lima, one of the directors, after a long pause, said, it's about identity. It's about family. And we said, okay, we're in. Because mm. at that point, they would pitch us the stories because we had passed on Pocahontas and not because there was a problem with Pocahontas. We just didn't understand how we would be able to help them. And the worst thing for us is to be hired on to be expensive and not moving forward. That's not good for anybody. Um, so we passed on Pocahontas. Well, my wife always says no is the sexiest word in Hollywood. <laughs> Once you say no to something, it's like, oh, well, how about this? <laughs> let's, let's, uh, so we had to turn the ship of Tarzan as quickly as possible um, to a story about identity and about family. Mm. And if you look at every sequence in Tarzan, even the overtly comic interludes, they're still about that. Mm. Still what's driving you. It gives you your dialogue, it gives you, you know, your ancillary characters, it gives you everything to know what um, what that core is. Do you have any advice for writers who they've written a script and it's just dry and it's not working and maybe they're missing that core thing? How do they find it? Uh, that's, that's a great question. I've certainly been there. You know, I'll be seduced by a, a notion, you know, and, and try to write it. To me, it's sitting quietly and trying to dig beneath that particular story to say, okay, well, what's really going on? Forget the explosions, forget the characters, forget the particular plot and what the villain wants and all that stuff. Mm. What's really going on? What's really at issue here? So it's, it's to me, it's like an excavation to reach something um, as fundamental as I can find. And that, that's, what, uh, that's what I do. Yeah. Uh, it helps so much to have that in hand when you start. But I have to say, 
nine times out of ten, you're not starting there. You're starting with an idea, you know, of some sort. And it, for me, the idea takes hold or it doesn't. It, it's transitory. I kind of forget about it, or it sticks for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And I know I've got to write it, and then I've got to figure out what it's about. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's fantastic advice of, of being patient with it, of um, taking the time to find it. And uh, it's almost like testing it out. Let's test out this one kind of tension and theme and run it through the system. And if that doesn't work, let's try a different one and, and really have some patience with it. Because writing is cheap. You know, you're, right. you're, they're pixels on a screen, you know, in one sense. Yeah. Easy change, doesn't cost you anything except your life sweat and time <laughs> but um, you know so it's more important to get something down there even if it's wrong or really especially if it's wrong mm. because when something's wrong or an idea is wrong you can say no it's not that it's more like this well suddenly now you've got a this mm. and where you might not have had a this before so do the wrong things make mistakes because they start to reveal the right path. So I wanna ask you a question, and I hope this isn't too personal of a question, but I'm always curious for writers with a, a very long and illustrious career, and you've done amazing work, that the the credits do stop at some point on IMDb, and, and you, make, you made a transition into teaching and all these things. I'm really curious um, what that period is like for you. Is it that the job's dried up or is it you're constantly working and just nothing is being made? What does that period of your career look like? The way I look at it is writers tend to have 10 year chunks, mm. the, the way I see it. And if the writer doesn't reinvent themselves by the end of 10 years, then it's gonna start falling off. Wow. For various reasons. There was a period where we stopped producing original work and uh, health issues, life issues came in and made it really difficult to do that. Not that it's ever easy. So the other thing is when you look at an IMDb like that, you see a cluster of work and then nothing. Mm-hmm. That nothing can be populated with many, many genres that don't go to film or you don't get credit on it or you you doctored it or, or something like that. So we have a long run of, of uh, you know, a few live action, a bunch of uh, animation things, many jobs in between and after that never went anywhere. So it can be deceptive. I am be- because only one out of, I don't know, every hundred financed scripts gets made, maybe one out of 500, I have no idea. That can be deceptive. Mm. But I think there is something to, you need to keep writing for yourself Mm. because writing professionally can easily become spirit damaging. And it can be harder and harder when you see things ruined or you know, bad choices made or just horrible rewrites that follow you. It can make writers angry. And no one wants to work with an angry guy. (laughs) You know, it's just no fun. But there's an element of ageism, certainly. Because executives tend to run young and they want to work with their peers, you know. Um, But 
there are still people my age working and we're still working. So, so the pressure to continue to create and keep yourself fresh and excited about writing is crucial to a long, a long career. Now, I appreciate you being honest about it. I think it's so cool for people to really get a view of what that world looks like and what a career actually looks like. And, you know, a lot of times it looks rosy. Sometimes, uh, sometimes it looks rosy when it's not. Sometimes it looks like it's empty when you're actually very busy. And it's just, it's a lot different than what people think of it as. Yeah. What you want to do career-wise is put yourself in a position to make other people a lot of money. You'll make money too, but you want an agent to see a paycheck in you or a manager or a studio or a producer. When they look at you, they don't care about you and your writing and all that stuff. It's, can this person produce for me? Are they gonna be able to sustain the relationships required to make this project go smoothly? Yeah, yeah. Go smoothly, it costs money. Yeah. So tell me about teaching. So was that always a goal of yours? Did you kind of accidentally land into it? Is it a you know secret love? I have the interest in it. And I was supposed to, uh, I contacted UCLA Extension and said, you know, I'm kind of interested in trying out teaching a little bit. And so they hired me and then they had a budget cut. So they called and said, no. And I dropped it for some years. Then I thought about it again. And I wrote a letter to Jack Epps, head of USC writing. And uh, the, the Emerson College, but the branch here in Hollywood, they're based in Boston. Gotcha. Emerson never answered. And in my letter to Jack, I said, I'm especially interested in this interaction between artist and writer, hmm. is akin to art, uh, writer and director. And, um, and he wrote back and said, well, come on in. And so we met and and then he hired me to teach a graduate course. It's like the last graduate course. I, I thought of it as if I'm going to do damage, it would be the least damage I could do. Yeah. And I, I really liked it. You know, it, it, it got my motor going again. I had felt separated from and discouraged about writing. And my interest was waning in it in the same way that my interest in acting started waning. So I'm really glad I, I got the got into the teaching because I just teach one class a semester because otherwise it takes up too much time. And I love the because I never was taught how to do it, it forces me, like your questions force me to reflect on well, what do I do? You know? Yeah. Uh, and how does it work? And I find that exciting. Awesome. Well, we'll wrap up with, on the podcast, I ask the same five questions every time. So I want to ask these questions of you, and then we'll do some exclusive Q&A with our members group. First question is, what do you write? So medium, genre, theme, what is, what is a Bob Zudiker script? <laughs> I would say, left to my own devices, uh, dark comedy cool. is what I enjoy. Uh, what's your proudest accomplishment? Professionally? Sure. Uh, I think Tarzan and Jane in the treetops in Tarzan when they first meet. Wow. 
that that sequence. Um, how do you define success? A, a feeling of continued interest, energy, enlivening in the activities. What writers do you most look up to and why? I recently rewatched The West Wing just to console myself. <laughs> and, uh, so as as much as he annoys me, Aaron Sorkin is really is quite remarkable in, in, in a certain uh, form of writing. Really quite remarkable. Most of what I really admired lately has been in uh, streaming or television, uh, sadly. Um, and that's part of my disconnect at a certain point from the business also is the features being made didn't really suit me in some ways. I find these questions really hard. So these are writers I admire. For me, I learned a lot from um, prose and philosophy. Mark Twain and his rules for writing. Saki, the English writer. H.H. Monroe. Plato. The Odyssey. Big impact there, I think. Um, so I have a, a lot of classics. So I go back to the the classics that's great uh finally what advice would you give to your younger self don't assume you have as much time as you think you do if you have an idea write it and finish it mm. even if it's bad especially yeah. if it's bad <laughs> yeah don't 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 write such good first drafts they're too hard to change so i i think that would that would cover it. It's, it's a lot of it is time and focus related, I'd say. Awesome, Bob. This is a fantastic conversation. I mean, I feel like I gosh, I learned so much just from your experience and wisdom. <laughs> um, so where can people find out more about you or maybe more specifically the Zutiker app so that they can get some great notes on their, their own screenplays? Yeah, go to the website and, and sign up and uh, post stuff, read stuff. That's the thing is 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 to be able to read other people's screenplays and know and get a sense of where people are hitting the mark you can read all the master works you want it won't teach you diddly about writing read something that's almost good or that has potential and try to figure out why what does it need share that with the writer and now you've gained tremendous knowledge uh, about writing and especially when they read your stuff and it goes back and forth yeah Take the risk of of, of being read well, then you might be comfortable with. yeah highly recommend it zoodiker.com z-o-o-k-i-d-e-r did i do that right z-o-o-d-i-k-e-r z-o-o-d-i-k-e-r -E -E yeah i should have i couldn't think of a name for it and then like okay well i didn't want to be up front you know right. i want to be behind the scenes and I thought, well, if I don't spell my name right, then no one will know it's me. Right, yeah. <laughs> hey, we got, we've got Google and Zoom and everything else. So Zutiker feels, feels right at home with that. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks so much, man. Thank you. Thank you guys for joining us. And many thanks again to Bob for sharing his experiences with us. To this day, Tarzan is still one of my favorite Disney films. And it's been such an honor to learn from him. As a Script Plus member, I had the opportunity to ask Bob a question in the Q&A session that followed this interview. These calls truly feel more like one-on-one -on -one conversations than educational lectures. So if you're interested in growing your career by learning from the experience of seasoned professionals, side-by-side -side with other writers just like you, 
Join today, free for a week, at members.scriptplus.com. As always, if you'd like to reach out to Hudson personally, shoot him an email at hudson at scriptplus.com. See you next time.